I'd really like to have a chance for the people that I love to hear my story, to understand why this story is important. You're listening to Becoming Wardless, a podcast series featuring stories from people who have made the decision to walk away from Mormonism. Each episode features an interview with one person sharing their story. Our aim is to explore their experience in a respectful and thoughtful way for all people, regardless of your connection to Mormonism. And now, join us for our first episode featuring Michaela's story. My name is Michaela, and this is my story. I was born into, well, actually, let me rephrase. I was not born into an active Mormon family. My mom was an active member of the church. My dad had been uh, baptized and raised Mormon uh, until he was about eight, but really never developed a testimony, never went to church after that. So I would consider him a non-member. And they got divorced, I think, within my first year, maybe when I was six months old. And at the time, it was me and my two older sisters from that family. My mom remarried my stepdad uh, about a year later, and he did come from an active Mormon family. Um, And then my dad, excuse me, my stepdad and mom then had my younger brother and sister. So we had a total of five. So um, I would say I spent 80% of my time at home within the active Mormon household and probably 20% with my dad in a not-Mormon environment. So how would you describe the differences between the 80% of the time you spent with your mom and your stepdad and the 20% of the time that you spent with your with your dad? Well, they were both positive, you know, home experiences. Um, we definitely did all the Mormon things in my active home. Um, but when I would go visit my dad, it was always fun. He did kind of the fun things. He was the fun dad. So we had a good time, but it was really hard to context switch because I felt like I was being taught that the way we did things at home is the right way. And there is a wrong way or a bad way or a scary way even. And so when I left uh, every week, every other weekend to go see my dad, my mom was always very sad about it because she was missing that time, I'm sure with us just as the mom, but also she was missing that time to teach us, to help us build our testimonies. And that was devastating to her. And I was aware of that. And so it was very confusing to me, especially the younger that I was, to feel like I was going into a scary place, but still this this supposed scary place was with my dad, who I loved, and we were doing fun things. And that was just confusing. What's right? You know, I, I just didn't wasn't sure. Or you could even say, I felt like I knew what was right, which was the active Mormon way. But because my dad wasn't following that, like, what does that mean if a person that I love isn't doing the things that I have been taught are important? I, I get a real sense of conflict, you know, like, For in sure. how do I look at my dad who I love, but then how do I reconcile this with my mom who I love, who's teaching me that that's a scary way to, like, that there's a right and wrong, and this is on the wrong side right. of that right and wrong. Exactly. So what was that environment like in, in your home with... How did you, what was your Mormon experience like? Like, what type of Mormon were you? Yeah, I think I had a pretty typical Mormon experience, other than the visiting my dad every other weekend. Uh, you know, we tried to do all the things you're supposed to do: family home evening and scripture study. I mean, we weren't terribly consistent. Um, one thing that was different is because of my mom's divorce, I was not sealed to my stepdad, and so I remember 
well, a huge part of my childhood is just remembering how many bajillions of prayers we offered to allow us to get the permission to be sealed as a family. That was just the theme of my childhood. Uh, So every family home evening, every dinner prayer, I I mean, all the time. And I'm probably exaggerating, but that's what I remember. Um, Certainly we fasted, we did all of those things. And eventually my dad did give permission for uh, my older sisters and I to be sealed to the rest of the family. And we were, and I remember that day very Mm -hmm. well. I was... I think nine or was 11. Was that a happy day for you? Yeah, it was a happy day. Uh-huh. You know, this was kind of the main goal for my mom and, and my stepdad as well. Um, this was what our family wanted. And so, yeah, I was very much bought into that, that this is the goal, this is where we should be. But again, that conflict was definitely still back there. So what does this mean for my dad and my relationship with him? The fact that I'm now sealed to someone else. And that was confusing. Uh, beyond that, I would say everything else is, you know, again, pretty typical. Uh, I feel like I thought that I had a testimony from a very young age. My mom is certainly a very spiritual person, and it was uh, very much in the conversation in our home. That was the language that we spoke. Is there anything else from growing up that you think is, you know, that that shaped, you know, who you were as a member of the church or who you were as a person? Oh, yes, definitely. So <laughs> I think from a pretty young age— I was very aware that I was different from the other kids that I went to church with. They all came from very traditional Mormon families. They were at church every Sunday, did all the things, and I didn't. And I was missing church 50% of the time. And I remember that being a big deal to me. And the older that I got, it became an even bigger deal because I felt like I was missing out. So when I was, oh gosh, I was probably nine, I think, I decided that I wanted to go to church more often. I just hated kind of this divided life that I had. And so I felt like I needed to have a conversation with my dad about it. Which dad? Uh, My biological father. And so, yeah, when I was about nine, I asked him if we could start going to church, even on the weekends that we were with him. And that was very scary to me. I was worried about whether he would withdraw or if that would make him angry. I just didn't know how he would respond. But again, it also felt really big and really important to me at that age. So I remember that he was not very pleased with the conversation. I don't remember what he said, but uh, the end result was that we could go to church half of the time that we were with him, which meant I would go to church 75% of the time. And so those Sundays that we were with him, on those weekends that we were going to go, he would drive us to church, drop us off, come back and pick us up. And I remember those as being the most awkward Sundays, just the most awkward experiences, because I was very clear on how he felt about the church. He was not a fan. Um, So I really felt um, proud of that, I would say, that I did that. I felt... That took courage at nine to stage a question where you're potentially going to be rejected by your father. Yeah, and and I sh- and that is a fair thing to be proud of. Yeah, at that age for sure. Um, but it definitely shaped it definitely shaped my testimony because I had to ask for it. I had to ask at a very young age for to have a testimony. Basically, I was asking permission, like to let me develop a testimony. And so, to me, testimony was the number one, the most important thing. So as you think about the development of your testimony, what happened next? 
Well, I went to BYU when I left high school, and that was great for me. Um, I grew up in uh, the Pacific Northwest, where there were some members, not a ton. I mean, there were probably, I don't know, 30 members of the church in my high school. Uh, And so I was really excited to go to BYU and kind of just have, be in my own tribe. Uh, And then I decided to go on a mission when I turned 21. I think I'd sort of always assumed that I would. Uh, my two older sisters had both gone on missions already, and I very much admired them and wanted to be like them. And um, I knew that my my parents, my mom and stepdad, were very pleased with my two older sisters as well, and I'm sure that was part of it. But again, it, it was sort of a given for me. I was I considered myself to be a very spiritual person, to have a very strong testimony, so that was the inevitable next step. So I did. I went on a mission. I got called to Boise, Idaho, which was hilarious because I was not excited. But I was trying so hard to put on a brave face and be like, yeah, I'll go wherever the Lord wants me to go. (laughs) (laughs) Sob quietly in the corner. Uh (laughs) Because I really wasn't happy about it. I really wanted to go foreign so bad. Yeah. So I... One on a mission. Um, missions, as everybody knows who's been on the ones, are brutal and they're also great. Mm-hmm. Um, I had my definitely some very extreme highs and some very extreme lows. It's really both ends of the oppositional spectrum. Yes, definitely. And for sure, the hardest was I got sick on my mission and I ended up having to go home early. I actually flew home on my one year mark. It was really weird. The, I'd been sick for several weeks. I couldn't find anything wrong. And then the day before I went home, I just got this random phone call from my mission president said, okay, you're going home tomorrow. And You had um, no idea? No, no clue. Wow. I didn't know that was next. I, I knew that the doctors that I'd been to weren't finding anything, but mm. I didn't know that that was even a possibility. It never even had occurred to me. And so the next day you're on a plane. So the next day home. I'm on the plane. Well, and the funny thing is, the day before was a zone meeting and everybody knew I was going home. And of course, everyone's like, what did you do? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't, I don't, I didn't do anything. I didn't break any rules. I didn't do anything. So how was that for you? Because I know that there is a stigma around coming home early from a mission, whether or not it's a good or a bad thing. The stigma exists in Mormon culture. Oh, it absolutely exists. And it was so hard. I don't know if I can emphasize enough how painful and difficult that was um, for a lot of reasons. So probably the number one issue was that I didn't have symptoms that you could see. And it was just so hard. I felt like, God, do I need, should I amp it up a little bit so that people really can tell that I'm sick? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I just... I wanted people to understand that I I wasn't unrighteous, that I didn't want this, that I was really trying to have faith, but somehow I still ended up here. What what impact did that have on you and your testimony? Oh, I don't think it impacted my testimony, but it definitely impacted my view of myself. What do you mean? Well, I felt... It was confusing. I felt responsible, Mm. and yet I knew logically that I wasn't. But okay, I remember a doctor asking me at one of the many appointments I went to asking me, so did you actually like your mission? And I remember feeling like, oh, crap, he can see right into my soul. And maybe that was the problem that I just didn't like it. And I didn't want to be there. 
But I could not admit that. Oh, why I couldn't could you admit, admit that? Because that was like a betrayal of what I was doing. I, you're supposed to love your mission. You're supposed to be out there and just revel in knocking on doors and baptizing people. And it was really hard. And I did get sick, but there were, and there were for sure times that I didn't love it. And so when he asked me that, I was very defensive. I'm like, no, I loved it. It was the best thing ever, as you're supposed to say and feel. And I felt really guilty that maybe I didn't feel quite that fantastic about it. So this also came really abruptly. I was released after five weeks just with a phone call from my state president. He just called me up one day and was like, hey, you're done. <laughs> and that was the end of my mission. And that was like a whiplash to me because, I mean, you don't understand. If you've been on a mission, again, you understand you've been set apart. You've been called. You have this the mantle of the missionary on you. And then it's over? What? <laughs> like That was really hard for me to wrap my head around. And and again, to reconcile, like, what does this mean about me? Did I do something wrong? Did I not want to go back enough? Is that what, is that what, is that why it didn't happen? You know, um, and starting from that point, <laughs> then I would have nightmares all the time that I did get called back on the mission and I did not want to go back because that happens. People get released and then they get better and then they go back. And at that point, I just... I don't even know how to explain it, but I was just done. I couldn't, I just couldn't go back. It was just too painful, too raw. Like that experience was so hard. I, there's just no way I could have gone back. But again, I felt super guilty for feeling that way. I should want to go back. I should want to finish this out. I didn't finish my time. I didn't complete it. I can't even consider myself a return missionary because I didn't serve my full 18 months. I only served 12. And that was hard. Yeah. So you're home from your mission. You know, you get released and life starts up again. So what happens next? Okay. So a few years after my mission, I met my husband, Ammon. And this was, I should note, after I graduated and left BYU, which was horrifying to everyone I knew at BYU, mm-hmm. that I was leaving without my eternal companion. That was just ridiculous. Anyway, so I, I went back to Seattle and met my husband, Ammon. We got married. Uh, so we were just married and working for uh, about five or so years. And we had my first child right after that, we moved to Colorado and this was important because, uh, again, I'd grown up in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle. I had always considered myself a, a very, I was definitely a faithful Mormon and had a strong testimony, but I considered myself very progressive. I had felt like my experiences with my dad and being around lots of non-members really gave me a more nuanced perspective on Mormonism in general, and uh, I just wasn't a real super strict rule follower. And so when we moved to Colorado, we moved to a very tiny town in kind of uh, about 45 minutes north of Denver and east of Boulder. And it was like mini Utah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't even describe. <laughs> it was just it was just full of young married couples just like us. Um, everyone there uh, certainly politically was very different. It was a very conservative place. Uh, so I I would say right when we moved in, I got the sense that, okay, one of these kids is not like the other. I don't really fit into this group. And how did that relate to your faith journey? So I was alone, away from my family. Uh, we didn't have any family in Colorado. Uh, my husband was in graduate school. I had a newborn, and I was working uh, full-time at the time. So this was a, a challenging time, I felt. 
I felt pretty isolated. And so I really wanted to connect to my ward and specifically, you know, the women in my ward and to mm-hmm. develop friendships. And so over the next few years, I just kind of, I would say I slid more and more towards living the gospel more rigidly, I would say, than I had before. And I, I, I don't know if I, I think I was just trying to fit in, you know, I remember when there was talk of Prop 8 that came up, that was right around that time. And I remember thinking, I don't really agree with that, but and most of the people I knew were pretty supportive of it and saying, okay, we followed the prophet. And so I just sort of said, well, okay, I guess that's what I need to do. So I think of that period as like my doubling down time, if you will, really trying to just be the just a hundred percent super in, um, giving it all to this the the active side of your upbringing, right? And saying, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this work. Mm-hmm. And so then, what happened? You're doing this, and and it was not sustainable. I would say, uh, kind of my middle years of Colorado are when. I just realized that, okay, that's not really who I am. I I really felt like I had a strong testimony, but I'm just not super orthoprax, meaning that I don't feel that it's important to, you know, that we do all these things exactly perfectly. And it started to feel lonely. And I remember sitting in Sunday school, and there was this guy in my ward who was kind of obnoxious and, <laughs> and was always asking stir the pot questions. Mm-hmm. You know, that person that just is always yes. throwing it out there just to kind of get everybody talking. And half the time I didn't agree with his questions, but I was bothered by how offended other people were by him. He really made people angry in that yeah. ward with his questions. And there was sort of a, why can't you just toe the line attitude towards this guy? And I just thought, well, what the heck? This is Sunday school. We're supposed to be figuring things out and discussing. And I just did not see that happening. And it really bothered me. And so that was the time that I started doing weird things like driving to Burger King during Sunday school and, yeah. and crying in the drive through because I just felt like I do not fit in. I just, I do not fit in here. I don't feel the same way these people feel. I just felt very lonely. Would you say that this was the start of your faith crisis? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'd always had issue with, you know, cultural things and being very letter of the law. Um, but this is definitely the time when it became really unsustainable for me. Like, I can't do this anymore in the same way. So this was very much a time when I started questioning a lot of things that I'd thought about before. um, And it sort of, of course, put on the shelf. And this was a time when I started reaching back to, to my shelf and saying, okay, I'm not okay with these things. Am I okay with everything else still too? And I'd, I'd always had questions. I was never a person that shied away from questions at all. Like, I remember talking to a temple president when I was on my mission about yeah. uh, women in the temple. And um, we'd always had good conversations growing up. So that wasn't scary to me. But I'd always found a way to be okay with the answer that I came up with. To make it work. Yeah, to make it work. And I'd gone back home to Seattle in the summer for a visit. And uh, my family and I were gathered out on the patio at my parents' house. And I just wanted to throw it out there. I I was having a question about prayer, and I couldn't come up with a good solution. Mm -hmm. And so I remember throwing it out there and asking my family. And every time I had done that in the past, I'd always 
come away with, oh, okay, that works. That that makes sense to me. So this is a strategy that worked for you before and did it work for you this time? No. Yeah, it was really surprising. We just kind of kept talking and I kept asking and I and I was really asking like, somebody please solve this one for me because yeah. I, I want to feel differently about this. I don't want to feel the way that I do about it, but I can't, I can't get myself over this hurdle. And Everything everyone was saying was fine, but nothing really answered that question for me. Nothing solved it. It, it just wouldn't. It just like couldn't it had before. Yeah, it it just couldn't be erased the way it had been before. And I remember actually walking away and feeling like I have no answer to this, and being really shocked by that, and not even knowing what to do with that thought. How long did you sit with that thought before you knew what to do? Oh, I had no idea what to do. I just sat with that for a couple of years, years. I would say. But I, at the same time, I was also trying to, because I felt like my testimony was sliding, it must be sliding because of me and what I'm doing or not doing. And so I really took that as an opportunity and a, the time to double down and just see if I could just <laughs> buckle down and do everything right. And if I do everything right, I will feel differently about this. I will gain a testimony of this thing that's confusing to me right now. And so I tried that for a month. I did a 30-day goal. And uh, every day I made sure that I prayed a billion times a day and <laughs> read my scriptures. And I went to the temple that month a couple times. And at the end of the month, I felt maybe a little better because I didn't feel guilty for not doing all the things that you know you should be doing. Um, but I definitely didn't feel any different spiritually. I didn't receive any answers. I didn't feel any better about anything. So then what, what happened? What happened next? So I just kind of kept going. I just kept my head down. I, I definitely missed church pretty frequently. I would just feel really tired on Sundays, like, oh, I can't pick this up again. And it, it just felt heavy to me. It, it wasn't a positive place for me anymore. But again, I had no idea if there was anything else I could do. So I just kind of kept going. Uh, and so let's see, about six months after my month-long experiment, my daughter turned eight and was baptized. And that was a big moment for me because I knew I was not feeling 100% in my testimony. I, I just wasn't sh even sure how I felt about the church in general. I, she got baptized. And again, I, I think that was fine because I wasn't ready to make a big decision one way or the other, but it, it certainly was challenging. I remember my mother-in-law came to the baptism and my parents, and we were talking. And I remember thinking that I wanted my mother-in-law to know that I still, that I was still active and I keep wanting to say have value. Um Say something about that, that you, you're equating being active with having value. Yeah. I felt a little worried that if they knew where I was spiritually, they wouldn't accept me the same way. My in-laws are very sweet. Um, they're also very active. Um, I knew that they loved me for sure, but I, would, I worried that they would think I wasn't worthy of their son or of their grandchildren, even if I was faltering in my testimony the way that I was. And so I remember having a conversation with my mom and my mother-in-law, and I 
I made some comment about spiritual things. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, I don't actually believe what I'm saying right now and being totally aware that I was doing that, but not knowing any other way to handle the situation. And so just leaving it at that, like, okay, I'm not being honest, but I don't know what else to do. So moving on. You played the part that you thought you were, that you've seen played before. Right. I just played the part and that was really painful. So this this internal struggle continues. Oh, yes. Right? So that continues. Um, about six months after that happened, we unexpectedly moved back to Washington. And this was great in my mind because I felt like, oh, sweet, I'm moving back to the land of the liberal and with people that I can relate to and who understand me. And it's going to make everything better in terms of my testimony. I felt like this is going to solve all my problems. Uh, And so we moved back here. We were living with my parents at the beginning, and we started going to their home ward. Uh, This ward was just everyone on all ends of the spectrum, and I really loved that. I felt like, okay, this is a place that I can fit in and I can be okay with even my sort of weird, twisted version of activity or testimony right now. So at this point, you're not saying I'm done or leaving Mormonism. At this point, you're still in trying to make it work. Yeah, So I saw this time in Seattle, being back in Seattle as really being a chance for me to kind of get back in with my people and and really get centered again and just make it work. It was it was all about me not having done this right or me having or me lacking in some way. And I wanted it to work so badly. So I I was active in, in the ward here for a year or so and you know had a, a couple of different callings um eventually i realized huh things are not getting better it just wasn't working and that was so sad to me because i felt like where do i go now i have done everything that i can think of i have tripled my efforts i've moved i've i mean i tried everything and nothing was making me feel any differently about it. I still had questions. I still wasn't happy. I still got frustrated at church. Um, And just earlier today, I came across some notes that I wrote right around this time. This was in uh, mid-2015. And I said, my goal right now is spiritual integrity, figuring out what I believe and then living that way not because I'm supposed to or because I've been doing it that way my whole life or because I feel guilty if I don't, but because I want to live it. That's what I wanted. Um, And being in that limbo was so painful. It was not what I wanted for myself, but I just could not think, I just couldn't figure another way out. And so right around that time is the time I thought, okay, the only thing that I have not tried is letting go and letting go of the checklist, letting go of what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing and just doing what feels right to me at the time. So if that means go to church, great. If it means don't go to church, great. And so right around that time, I basically stopped reading my scriptures. I stopped praying. I just I think of this as sort of my experiment time where, okay, I've tried everything else. Let's try, if I just eliminate some things now, am I going to feel any differently? How will I feel if I just stop doing the things that are supposed to help? Will that make any difference because I've tried everything else? So, And what did you find? 
Well, I told my parents um, and most of my siblings, I think right around that time, that I was going to take a break. That was how I worded it. And that was, I think, very scary for them. It was very scary for me, for sure. Um, because I really, I just didn't know where I was going to end up. I, I didn't know what that taking a break meant. All I knew is that I couldn't think of anything else to do. Uh, I did have one sibling that felt compelled to point out the the spiritual risk to my family that I was taking. And I totally understand and why that, that she felt like back that. To the prayers when you were a kid of praying to be an eternal family sealed together. Yes, exactly. Wow. Because this had been our number one goal and now I am I'm You're threatening you. it. Yeah. So I, I understand why she felt like that, but at the time that was just so not what I needed. I just wanted somebody I just wanted somebody to be to understand what I was experiencing and to be going through the same thing. And there was nobody out there that was going through what I was going through. Yeah. So how long did this experiment last? So I probably did that for six months or so. I, I went once or twice. And every time I went, I felt increasingly uncomfortable. Just I don't connect to what's happening here. I don't feel the same way that I used to. The more time that went by, the more I felt like, you know, maybe it's possible that the reason that I feel that the way that I do are not just about me and what I'm not doing right or not doing well. Um, that maybe there's something more to it than that. That's a big question to hit. Yeah, it was a really big question to hit. And What did that feel like? That felt terrifying uh, because I was essentially giving myself permission to ask the question, is this true? And I'd never done that before. That had never been, I mean, yes, I've asked, you know, prayed and said, is this true? But never with the understanding that the answer could go either way. And this was the first time I allowed myself to do that, to consider an alternate possibility. And that felt, again, terrifying and also extremely liberating. Like, Those whoa. Those are two very different emotions. <laughs> yes, it was very extreme feeling. Um, yeah, because I really felt like I had listened my whole life and asked these questions with the assumption that I'm always going to find this certain answer or that is always the right answer to the question. And, and that had been given to me by other people mm -hmm. my whole life. And this was the first time that I really allowed myself to 100% alone by myself say, maybe for me, there is something different. There is a different answer. And that felt big to me. When you finally found that answer that you felt was right for you, what, what did you feel? Relief. I think is the overriding one. Um, well, describe that relief. Yeah, I felt um, because there was another answer that I could come up with other than I am wrong or I am flawed or I am misunderstanding this, it felt like a huge relief, like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders that I could finally take a deep breath and say, okay. This is not because I'm a flawed person. This is not because I'm lacking in some way. And I had not been able to do that before. I see that you're, this is like brings up a lot of emotion for you. 
Yes, because what I was doing was redefining my whole identity. And that is terrifying and huge and scary. And something I I just want people to understand that I did not take this lightly. This wasn't a flippant decision. It didn't sound easy. No, it was not easy. And it took years, obviously, uh, to... To change the way you perceive yourself and to change your whole paradigm is so, uh, I want to say devastating in, in the ways that it, it changes you and changes your whole the landscape of your life. But I don't want that negative connotation associated with devastation. Um, devastation as in tearing everything down. Yes, tearing it all down and then being able to rebuild. And it's scary because, again, it was about identity. I was kind of redefining who I was. And I also knew what I would be doing to the people that I loved, that this was going to be hard and they were going to have feelings about it. I still very much do not want to cause anyone sadness or heartache. And this does, and there's really no way around that. And I can't change that. In some ways, I'm really hoping that by sharing this, that people will understand kind of how and why I got here a little bit better and know that I, how seriously I took this. What do you want to tell your believing friends and family? That I never thought I would be here. Um, that this was not something I chose because I thought it would make my life easier. I want them to know that I still love them that I want to have relationships with them. Um, I am very aware that in terms of our relationship and that I'm the one that's changed, that I'm the one that's moved, and I feel a lot of responsibility for that, uh, for changing the relationship. I'm aware of that, and, and I feel guilt about that. I feel sad. And so I want them to understand that I don't feel the same way about the church that I did, but I still feel the same way about them, that I love them. And I, if the church is bringing them, them happiness, then do that. I would never tell, I would never try and take away anyone's faith because it's not up to me to decide what is going to make someone else happy and what is important to someone else. And part of that is knowing that even though we may not agree on the same things, that I can still accept and love and that we can still have a relationship. It may look a little different than it did before, but it doesn't have to be less. And And I want to find ways to, to connect and to be close without having that shared um, paradigm. And, and I don't, I, you know, to be honest, I, I don't know how that's going to look in some of my relationships. Are you hopeful that you'll figure that out? Definitely. Yeah, I think I wouldn't, at the beginning, I didn't have any idea where this was going to bring me. And I certainly didn't anticipate kind of the, the gift that it's been to have um, a much clearer identity and sense of self that I've developed. And so I'm hoping it will be something like that, that I can't envision what my life and my relationships will look like several years from now, but I'm hoping that they will be better than I imagine. 
And I think that's the perfect place to end. Thanks for sharing your story, Michaela. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Whatever your relationship with Mormonism might be, we appreciate you being here, and we hope you found this to be valuable. Becoming Wardless is a sub-series of the Wardless podcast. To learn more, or to find out how to feature your story on Becoming Wardless, please visit wardlesspodcast.com.